This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. The uh, officers in the early CIA took a sort of pride in being callous about human life. It was a way to show how macho you were. And uh, it would have seemed very uh, naive and sentimental to complain about the excesses of MKUltra. Given the threat, as we were made to believe it, the loss of a few lives, or the loss of a few hundred lives, would seem completely insignificant. That's Stephen Kinzer, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Stephen Kinzer on the CIA search for mind control. CIA skullduggery is legendary, from overthrowing governments to germ warfare to assassinations. But its MKUltra program may be at the top of the list. MKUltra was the code name for the top-secret CIA project in which the agency conducted hundreds of clandestine experiments, often on unwitting people, to assess the potential use of LSD and other drugs for mind control, information gathering, and psychological torture. MKUltra was essentially a continuation of experiments that began in Japanese and German concentration camps. Not only was it roughly based on those experiments, but the CIA actually hired the war criminals to share their, quote, research, unquote, as to what techniques were effective and what were not. It's a dark page in U.S. history. The godfather of the whole operation was the largely unknown Sidney Gottlieb. He was sometimes called the CIA's poisoner-in-chief. Our guest today is Stephen Kinzer. He was a New York Times correspondent and bureau chief in Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey. He teaches at Brown University. He's the author of many books, including Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb, and the CIA Search for Mind Control. He spoke at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And now, Stephen Kinzer. I've devoted much of my career to trying to discover what's behind the facade of public diplomacy and public politics that we see. In that research, I have come across quite a bit that's surprising, some things that may have shocked some people. But this is the first time I've been shocked. I cannot believe this happened. And I cannot believe this guy existed. I think I discovered the most powerful unknown American of the 20th century (laughs) who operated in complete invisibility, carried out extreme experiments on human subjects across three continents, and had a license to kill issued by the U.S. government. My book has been a, a thrilling but a very disturbing a few years of immersion into a very dark and uh, little-known chapter of American Cold War history. Sidney Gottlieb is completely unknown. MK Ultra, not quite so completely. It's, a, it's an expression people would understand. But certainly Gottlieb's role in it and Gottlieb's existence uh, would be something that nobody 
would have noticed up until this book came out. But let me take you back to the time that MK Ultra began and try to explain to you what it was and what Gottlieb's role in it was. Uh, MKUltra very simply was a CIA project aimed at finding the secret of mind control. CIA wanted to figure out how they could create a truth serum or an amnesiac or uh, a substance or potion that would make a person act uh, after being programmed. In the early 1950s, Alan Dulles, who had just taken over as director of the CIA, decided to hire a chemist from outside the agency to direct this project. And he went to a person very different from the kind of people that populated the early CIA. He was different in two important ways. First of all, most of the people in the early CIA were rich kids who were aristocratic silver spoon products of the same prep schools and investment banks and law firms. Sidney Gottlieb wasn't like that. He was 32 years old. He was the son of Jewish immigrants in the Bronx. Uh, Father owned a sweatshop. He had a limp. He stuttered. He was very different from everybody else that he came to work for on a Friday the 13th in 1951. And he was also different in another way, which was his private life. So... He must have been unique, not only among CIA officers of the early 50s, but among all federal bureaucrats in Washington at that time. He was a kind of a proto-hippie. He lived in an eco-house in the middle of the Virginia woods that had no running water. He meditated with candles around him. He studied Buddhism. He grew his own vegetables. Uh, He milked his goats before dawn in the morning to make yogurt. So this person who wound up being the most prolific American torturer of his generation was also somebody who considered himself to be a deeply spiritual humanist. That alone makes him a particularly interesting person uh, to have taken on this job. So with a scientist's mind, Gottlieb began his uh, program after having been given what amounts to a ridiculously daunting assignment, which was find the potion or the pill that will allow us to control people's minds so that we can defeat communism and control the world. His first step was to conclude that before you could find a way to insert a new mind into somebody's brain, you first had to blast away the mind that was in there. And Gottlieb spent 10 years experimenting on human beings, trying to find the best way to destroy a human mind, destroy a human spirit, and destroy a human body. These were the most extreme experiments ever carried out by any officer or agency of the U.S. government. Also, with his trained scientist mind, like a good Caltech graduate, Gottlieb began by asking himself, What existing research is there out there? Who has already conducted intense experiments aimed at destroying human minds and souls and bodies? Well, the obvious answer was the Nazi doctors who had worked in the concentration camps and their Japanese counterparts who had conducted experiments that were actually even more grotesque than the ones that went on in the Nazi camps. So uh, MKUltra wound up recruiting 
a number of Nazi doctors and their Japanese counterparts to come in and advise them on what they had learned in their experiments in concentration camps. So um, they had, for example, carried out very extensive experiments with mescaline on uh, prisoners at the Dachau concentration camp. What were the doses they used? How much mescaline will kill someone? We don't know. We're not going to be able to find out, but they would know. So some of these doctors worked with um, American CIA teams in Europe or in East Asia, and Gottlieb traveled to both of those places regularly to uh, oversee those experiments. Uh, Others came to the United States and actually came to work at uh, Fort Detrick in Maryland, where Gottlieb had his scientific base. I found a protocol, for example, of uh, two uh, former Nazi Party members who had been concentration camp uh, experimenters who came to Fort Detrick to give a lecture on sarin, the toxic poison gas. They explained the, how, all the ways that uh, it can be used and what kinds of dosages you need. And I was struck by one line in the protocol. It says, uh, we discovered that the age of the victim uh, does not change the amount of sarin that you need to achieve the fatal result. So you can just imagine what experiments they would have had to conduct in order to come up with conclusions like that. And these were lectures that were delivered to the CIA chemists and their co-workers at Fort Detrick. I visited what I think is the first CIA secret prison. It's in a beautiful chalet in Germany. And the young German businessman who owns it took me down into the basement and he showed me the storerooms. He said, these are the rooms where the CIA doctors experimented people to death using the same techniques that the Nazi doctors used right down the road here in concentration camps and with the presence and active cooperation of those very same doctors. He also told me the older people who live around here all know the history of this house. And in fact, I found an article in Der Spiegel, the German magazine, saying about this house, it says, this was the CIA torture house. There were deaths, but the number is not known. So this guy told me the people around here have said to me, they buried the bodies in the forests around here. And those places are now all covered up with shopping malls and apartment blocks. So uh, everything worked out in the end. Who were the subjects of these experiments? Well, they were two different groups because Gottlieb carried out experiments inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. Inside the U.S., his favorite subjects were prisoners for obvious reasons. He carried out some intensely brutal experiments inside prisons, and the inmates were never allowed to have any idea of what it was that was being given to them. And uh, we don't even know the details today since many of those protocols were later destroyed. But... Uh, we've picked up enough to get an idea. For example, I came across one experiment at the U.S. prison in Lexington, Kentucky, in which seven African-American inmates were segregated into a cell and fed triple doses of LSD every day for 77 days. So this was a an effort to see if that kind of an overdose would destroy a human mind. And you can guess the answer. It's yes. Yes, it can. Uh, So Gottlieb was uh, unendingly inventive in coming up with different combinations of drugs and other techniques. Outside the United States, Gottlieb's experiments were even more intense. 
because there he didn't have what they charmingly described as the disposal problem. These experiments were carried out mostly in Germany, although also in some other European countries. And of course, Germany was a place that the U.S. thoroughly dominated after World War II. Others were carried out in Japan and uh, the Philippines and uh, South Korea. And Gottlieb, as I said, would travel to these places to oversee many of these experiments. The uh, subjects in those experiments were people who were called expendables. Expendables could be either suspected enemy agents or refugees who didn't seem to have any connection to anybody and therefore wouldn't be missed if they never appeared again. In East Asia, many of the subjects were captured North Korean prisoners of war who could easily be disposed of if experiments went wrong or if they went right. And it was in these experiments that Gottlieb and his small group of chemists were responsible for a number of deaths. We don't know how many. And they were the results of these intense combinations of drugs and other torments that Gottlieb conceived. So, for example, I found one that I believe took place in this very uh, secret prison that I found in, in Germany. The idea was, according to the protocol, to take your expendable or expendables and uh, inject them with uh, overdoses of sedatives to put them into a deep coma. Then you inject them with massive overdoses of barbiturates to make them hyperactive. And when they're in the transition phase between coma and hyperactivity, you apply overdoses of electric shock and flashes of strobe lights inside a closed, uh, inside a container that's like a coffin-like sensory deprivation tank. So these are the kinds of things that Gottlieb would come up with as ways of trying to figure out how do you destroy a human mind? He spent 10 years conducting the most heinous experiments uh, that have ever been conducted with the official approval of the U.S. government. And at the end, he reached what might be described as a dual conclusion. Number one, yes, it is possible to destroy a human mind. And he left a trail of, of victims who were devastated for the rest of their lives. Number two, no, it is not possible to insert a new mind into that void. You cannot make a person who's fundamentally opposed to murder go out and murder someone, much less later on to forget that he ever did it. Uh, so all of that suffering actually was aimed at producing a goal that Gottlieb finally concluded was a myth. Mind control, he finally concluded, is a myth. I said that Gottlieb was fascinated with LSD. He was really the first acid guru. Yeah, he and his man believed, as one of his chemists put it, that LSD could be the key that would unlock the universe. That would be the mind-controlled drug. Of course, in the end, he was forced to conclude that LSD, as he put it, surprises, too unpredictable to be used as a reliable mind-controlled drug. But that took him years to conclude. So in 1953, Sidney Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD. They spent $240,000 for it and it was brought home in a package from the Sandoz Chemical Company in uh, Switzerland. And Gottlieb did two things with that LSD. One is that he apportioned it out to the people conducting these horrific experiments in the U.S. and abroad. But he also had another use for it that was non-coercive. 
he wanted to find out how ordinary people would respond to LSD uh, in a clinical setting. So he set up two bogus medical foundations that contacted hospitals and clinics around the United States and told them, we have a new psychoactive drug. We want to test it on volunteers. We pay you to do this, and we give you the LSD for free. All you have to do is advertise in the campus newspaper or wherever you want for volunteers, and then write down notes about how people respond. So overnight, given the amount of money available, there was a sudden burst of uh, interest in investigating this new uh, psychoactive drug, and the experiments began. People would come in as volunteers and, and take LSD. So who were among the very first people to participate in these experiments? One of them was Ken Kesey. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was the product of this. So he went to the uh, VA hospital in Menlo Park as soon as he heard about the, the LSD. He loved it. And he started telling his friends to go volunteer. Then he got a job at the hospital, uh, which later became the basis for that book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But I found out in my research that that was not the reason why he got the job. That was just a felicitous result of him spending time in the hospital. As he later said, his real reason for getting the job was so that he could steal the LSD out of the medicine chest and give it to all his friends, which is what he did. Not far away at Stanford, one of the first participants was Allen Ginsberg. He also got his first LSD from Sidney Gottlieb, from MKUltra, from the CIA. He listened to Tristano di Zolda on his headphones while taking his first LSD trip. Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead, was an early experimenter at the same Stanford experiment. He got the LSD, he brought it home to the rest of the Grateful Dead, and the rest is history. Even Tim Leary was turned on by Sidney Gottlieb, although like all these other people, he didn't realize it until decades later. So Tim Leary's first interest in psychoactive drugs came when he read an article in Life magazine about some Americans who had gone to Mexico and found the magic mushroom. He was riveted by this. He went to Mexico. He found the magic mushroom. He tried it. He loved it. And that set him off on the career of being the Pied Piper of the LSD movement. What he didn't know and could not have known is that that expedition to find the magic mushroom was paid for by Sidney Gottlieb. He, too, was looking for any psychoactive substance in the world. So when he got wind of the fact that People were looking for the magic mushroom. He had one of his bogus medical foundations call them and say, sure, we'll support you. These people all realized later on that they had first been turned on by Sidney Gottlieb. And the irony, of course, is that the drug that Gottlieb thought would give the CIA the power to control people's minds wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA stands for. So that might have been one of Gottlieb's uh, most unpredictable, uh, unwished-for legacies. He's a, an unwitting godfather of the LSD counterculture. I found an interview with, LS, with, uh, with John Lennon, and uh, he was asked about LSD, and he said, we must always remember to thank the CIA. If he had known more, he would have said, we must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. I came across so many fascinating pieces of the Gottlieb story, and it makes you wonder how he was able to function this way. How was he able to do this? 
First of all, he had almost no supervision. He uh, was told to go out and do whatever he had to do. And the CIA officer who was essentially guiding him through his whole career, Richard Helms, and the boss of the CIA during that period, Alan Dulles, were really the only ones who had a pretty good idea of what he was doing. But that did not lead them to want to know more. They knew that what Gottlieb was doing was extreme, that it was bloody, that it involved torture, and that it probably involved deaths. But that did not lead them to say, I want to see some documents before you continue this. In fact, it had the exact opposite. Knowing that much led them to say, I don't want to know anymore. It has to be done. National security demands it. We've got Sydney doing it. Don't tell me anymore. And I think this is obedience to a culture that probably uh, it permeates not just the CIA, but other secret services as well. Ignorance is an asset. You don't want to know too much. And I think uh, that's one reason why Gottlieb was allowed to go off uh, and, and carry out experiments that were this extreme. Naturally, that also gave the CIA the excuse later on to say it was one crazy guy. We didn't know what he was doing. We had problems of supervision, as William Colby put it. That, I think, is one reason why Gottlieb was allowed to do this. But it didn't go unchallenged because in 1953, one of the members of Gottlieb's little group suddenly had an attack of conscience. Uh, A chemist named Frank Olson spent part of that summer as the MKUltra people did, traveling and watching these extreme experiments. And uh, Olsen was in Europe and apparently witnessed some several experiments in which people, expendables, as we charmingly call them, were uh, tortured and possibly tortured to death by toxins that he himself, Olsen, had developed. This really began to weigh on him. He told people he was very uncomfortable with this. He didn't want to continue. When he got back to the U.S., he even told people in the CIA, his own colleagues, that he wanted to quit, wants to quit the CIA. This person knew some of the deepest and darkest secrets of the Cold War. He had been uh, in the inner circle of army chemists since the end of the Second World War. Not only did he know about MKUltra, but whatever the United States did that had to do with germ warfare in Korea, if there was anything, he would certainly know because that was his job. So uh, he came back from Europe in 1953 with his doubts, spoke about them. At one point, we later learned, even asked a friend, do you know a good journalist? And on a November evening in 1953, he went out a 13th floor window of a hotel in New York City, plunging to his death in what was then described as the suicide of an army scientist. Uh, He was not working for the army. And uh, that it was a suicide now seems uh, less and less possible. The family, decades later, had the body exhumed and found a a big bruise right on Olson's forehead. And since then, a document, we call it an assassination manual. It's it's an eight-page memo from Gottlieb. It's about uh, how to kill people. And it does say in that document, uh, one of the best means is a fall from a great height, but you need to stun the guy by hitting him on the forehead first. Um, So all of this has uh, led to one of the uh, enduring mysteries of the Cold War, and the family is still eager to uh, pursue that case. Gottlieb carried out all kinds of bizarre projects. He had one in San Francisco in which he actually opened a bordello. He had one of his agents 
recruit a string of prostitutes who would bring men back to this apartment and dose them with whatever drug Gottlieb had sent in that week so that uh, his agent could observe uh, whether uh, sex and drugs together had some special effect on people, depending on the drug and the different circumstances. And Gottlieb's agent would sit behind a one-way mirror on his portable toilet, drinking martinis out of a pitcher and taking notes about what he saw. So this was your tax dollars at work trying to find a way to stop communism. And the name of that operation was Operation Midnight Climax. I told you that Gottlieb's uh, MK Ultra project wound down after about 10 years. It didn't actually come to a specific end, but it petered out around the late 50s, early 60s. And by then, Gottlieb had taken up a new job or a new assignment. He was the CIA's chief chemist. He knew more about toxins than anybody in the United States, probably more than anybody in the world. His freezer at Fort Detrick in Maryland was definitely unique from the poisons that he'd extracted. He was finding ferns and mushrooms and leaves. He was bringing home the gallbladders of African crocodiles to dissect them and take the toxins out. And in May of 1960, President Eisenhower told Alan Dulles and his uh, covert action chief that he wanted Fidel Castro, as he put it, sawed off. So famously, the CIA sent an envoy to meet with two uh, mafia gangsters and told them, we want to hire you to go gun down Castro in Havana. And those guys told him, essentially, you've been watching too many movies. That's a terrible idea because the guy would never escape. But uh, you must have somebody that makes poison. Why don't you get us some poison and maybe we can get it close to Castro? Well, they'd never heard the name of Sidney Gottlieb. And the CIA envoy who had come to them undoubtedly never heard of Gottlieb either. But they were right. Yeah, there was a guy at the CIA who made poison. And he got the job. So Gottlieb uh, obtained a box of 50 Cohiba cigars, the favorite brand of Fidel Castro, and poisoned every one of them with botulinum, one of his favorite poisons. Uh, It was so strong that you would just have to put it in your mouth and you would die. You wouldn't have to light it up or smoke it. Um, That obviously didn't get to Castro. Um, And then Gottlieb was asked to prepare something he had done in the past, which is L-pills. Another part of the lexicon I've now learned. L means lethal. Those were supposed to be dropped into Castro's tea or whatever he was about to consume. Obviously, they didn't make it either. During that same summer, President Eisenhower made a second assassination order. He asked for the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the prime minister of the Congo. In this case, Sidney Gottlieb not only made the poison, he made a whole poison kit. So he had the vial of botulinum. He had invented a hypodermic syringe, which had a super strong but microscopically tiny hypodermic needle so that if you got stuck with that in your thigh, you wouldn't even notice that anything had stuck you. And he had used a version of this to poison wine bottles through the cork because you couldn't detect that anything had gone through the cork. It was so so small and powerful. By some accounts, he even had a... uh, tube of poison toothpaste. Uh, He had the accoutrements like the mask and the gloves. And he made this poison kit and he personally carried it to the Congo. This made him undoubtedly the only American ever to carry U.S. government manufactured poison to another country. (laughs) 
with the goal of assassinating the leader of that country. Um, by his own account, he presented it to the CIA station chief, and the station chief, uh, he told, told the station chief what he was supposed to do with it. And the station chief replied, Jesus H. Christ, who ordered this operation? And Gottlieb replied, President Eisenhower. So uh, Lumumba was assassinated or executed by a squad of Belgian and uh, Congolese officers before uh, that poison could be administered. But nonetheless, uh, the whole project of being part of what was called the Health Alteration Committee at the CIA further uh, underlined uh, Gottlieb's credentials and made him even more of a popular figure. Those of you who've seen that movie called Bridge of Spies might remember the scene in which the uh, U-2 pilots are being briefed on their flight over the Soviet Union. And in that scene, they're presented with a suicide tool. The Americans who were directing the U-2 project, and Gottlieb was involved in this, were worried that one of the pilots would be captured. So they gave him a suicide device. Around the neck of Gary Powers, the uh, CIA pilot who was shot down in 1960, was a necklace with a silver dollar. Gottlieb had drilled a hole in the side of the silver dollar. In that hole was a sheath. In that sheath was a pin. And on the top of that pin was a tiny little gob of goo that would kill you in 15 seconds if you touched your skin anywhere. It's a toxin, uh, I learned, called saxitoxin, which is in the distillate Gottlieb uh, concocted, able to kill 5,000 people with one gram. He manufactured this by extracting minute amounts of toxin from thousands of Alaskan butter clams. That's what he and his scientists spent their time doing. So they're quite creative in their own way. You're listening to Stephen Kinzer on the CIA search for mind control. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program and the book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, Alternative Radio. Later on in the 1960s, as Gottlieb continued his rise up the CIA, he got one of the top jobs. He became the chief of the technical services staff, which is the organization that makes all the tools that spies use. So if you've seen those Bond movies or read those books, there was a guy named Q who makes all the spy craft. That was, that was Gottlieb. He held that job for seven years, longer than anybody else in CIA history. And he was just as imaginative then as he was uh, in his earlier assignments. Of course, he made not normal things like cameras that could fit into a cigarette lighter, but he made other amazing devices. Uh, one that I didn't want to look into too deeply was a uh, prison escape kit that was so miniaturized it could fit into a rectal suppository. Gottlieb retired from the CIA in uh, 1973 because Richard Helms was resigning. And Helms had been his main protector over all the 20-plus years he'd been at the CIA. When Nixon removed Helms as an indirect consequence of the Watergate scandal, Gottlieb 
couldn't stay because MKUltra and his past could no longer be protected. On their way out, Helms and Gottlieb decided that they should destroy all the records of MKUltra. And the protocol from the uh, CIA Records Center out in Warrington, Virginia, shows that Gottlieb himself went out there to supervise the destruction. And uh, the archivist writes, seven crates of documents were destroyed over my stated objections. Destruction of federal property uh, is a felony. And as a matter of fact, the FBI at one point later on tried to find uh, Gottlieb guilty for this, only to find out that he had cleverly arranged to confess this in a secret hearing before a Senate investigator after being granted immunity from prosecution. With that destruction, a huge archive was lost. So then Sidney Gottlieb, who was still in his mid-50s, decided he wanted to go out and spend the rest of his life being the Sidney Gottlieb that he always thought he was, the deeply compassionate humanist. So he and his wife sold all their belongings, including their eco-cottage. They got on a freighter, and they wanted to spend the rest of their lives traveling the world and helping people that suffered the most. And sure enough, in 1975, they were working at a hospital for leprosy patients in India when Sidney got a most unwelcome telegram from the general counsel of the CIA telling him, in essence, I have bad news for you. Somebody has figured out that you exist and they want to talk to you. Uh, That somebody was the church committee that was investigating the CIA. So sure enough, Gottlieb, who had lived his life in total anonymity, had to face this shocking prospect of going to Washington and testifying. Well, he did have to testify twice. However, uh, he was able to do it in closed rooms. He was treated very deferentially. And also the senators and investigators who questioned him really didn't know the right things to ask him. They could not penetrate the heart of his mystery. And besides that, they were facing so many other CIA abuses. They had to pick and choose. And MK Ultra was uh, dismissed as a kind of boys will be boys crazy project on the side and, and not as important as some of these other projects. So most of the questions to Gottlieb were about his involvement in assassination plots, in which he had essentially functioned only as a pharmacist. Nobody understood really what he had done uh, at MK Ultra. Then uh, Gottlieb went on to get a uh, graduate degree in speech therapy so he could help and counsel children who stuttered, as he did. He volunteered at the hospice. He acted in local plays. He was on the planning board. He wore his Birkenstock stock, uh, sandals around town. He, he uh, was seen as a, an ideal citizen. People who know him during this part of his life say that he was clearly troubled. He was weighed down. Uh, Seymour Hirsch went out to visit him during this period and said to me, he was racked by guilt. He was a destroyed man. If he had been Catholic, he would have gone to a monastery. The rabbi who knew him then said, uh, maybe in retrospect, he was just as puzzled by what he had done as we were, who began to learn a little bit about it. Toward the end of his life, a wall started to close in on Gottlieb. The family of Frank Olson, the guy that had gone out of the 13th floor window in 1953, never stopped coming after him. And waves of new investigations pointed more and more toward Gottlieb. In addition, during the 
70s and 80s, after the first MK Ultra revelations came out as a result of the Church Committee investigation, a small number of people who had been victimized in Gottlieb's experiments slowly began to put it together and began to think, that's what happened to me. And a few of these actually launched lawsuits. So one of these guys was a fellow named Stanley Glickman, who Gottlieb had poisoned with LSD in a bar back in the 1950s. I learned in my research that people who have hepatitis sometimes have very extreme reaction to LSD. And apparently uh, Gottlieb was interested in experimenting on this. So this guy did have hepatitis. He was lured into a bar. He was given this drug by a man with a club foot. And then his life completely fell apart. He never painted again. He was an art student. He never had a romantic relationship. And he became a street person in Greenwich Village for the rest of his life. More than 20 years after this happened, his sister was watching TV on the church when the church committee reports came on. And she called her brother and said, this was you. Remember the drink, the guy with the club foot, the, everything. That was it. So they started a lawsuit and they actually named Gottlieb as a defendant. Needless to say, the CIA intervened and court case dragged on and on and on. The guy finally died in the 1980s, but the sister would not give up the lawsuit. And finally, in 1999, after almost 20 years of pursuing that case, it was just about to come to trial. And Gottlieb was a named defendant, would have had to get on the stand and testify under oath, not just about this program, but about the whole MKUltra project. And just as the uh, case was about to open, Gottlieb died. Uh, I later went to visit the lawyer, now well into his 90s, living on uh, Long Island, uh, who followed this case for 20 years and shared his entire garage full of papers with me. And he told me, Eric Olson, the son of the guy that went out the window, came to visit me right after Gottlieb died. And we toasted to Gottlieb's death. And we found out that we had both reached the same conclusion. He killed himself. He didn't want to be the vehicle by which all of this came out and which great damage might be caused to the institution that he'd spent his whole career serving. Nobody knows if this is true. He was immediately cremated. And besides, he was renowned as an expert who not only could create poisons, but poisons that could never be detected in any autopsy. Uh, So looking back on Gottlieb, I think he does have some things to say to us today. First of all, of course, when you begin to realize what can be done behind the veil of secrecy, then you wonder, did I miss another Gottlieb? Or are there Gottliebs now? And technology is so much further advanced now than it was then. Are there other people who have this kind of power or, or more on a completely different scale right now? And will it be... 50 years later, that somebody else will be standing here looking back and telling us this. Gottlieb's work also definitely lives in the uh, memos that he wrote about how to interrogate people. Uh, This is one of my students, uh, one of of my students' projects. I asked her to find out, is there a connection between the famous memo that Gottlieb wrote back in the 50s about how to break uh, a suspect? How do you make a person lose all contact with the outside world and become totally reliant on you? Find out if there's a connection between this and future uh, efforts by the United States to do the same thing. And sure enough, she came back 
with information showing that Gottlieb's ideas about how you break a human mind and spirit were later reflected in memos used in the Phoenix program in Vietnam, in manuals that were given to Latin American police forces during the 1980s, and in manuals that were used for people in uh, Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. And in some cases, the phrases are coming right from Gottlieb's memos. So these techniques of what we now call extreme interrogation definitely trace their origin back to Gottlieb. In a larger sense, I think Gottlieb speaks to us today because he felt that the extremity of his work was made necessary by the urgency of the threat. He said in one of his pieces of congressional testimony, I I want everybody to know that I found this work very difficult and very unpleasant. And you couldn't understand it unless you understood the climate that we were working in. So he and his colleagues at the CIA in those days were told, of course, America always uh, obeys all kinds of legal and ethical and moral rules. But there once in a while comes a rare exceptional moment when the threat to us is so intense that very reluctantly we must put those aside for a short period of time. Actually, that sounds quite familiar for what we're hearing today. We're under such threat that certain civil liberties uh, have to be curtailed and certain kinds of things we wouldn't do under other circumstances have to be allowed. In a larger sense, commitment to a great cause is perhaps the most profound motivation for committing immoral acts. Patriotism is among the most transcendent and seductive of causes. And Gottlieb was very much caught up in that. He had not been allowed to serve in World War II because of his club foot. He was desperate for a way to serve the United States. Gottlieb, in the end, was a uh, strange combination of contradictory archetypes. He was an outlaw who also served power. He was a gentle-hearted torturer. Uh, He was a creator who's also a destroyer. And in the end, his story gives us what I find to be a disturbing way of understanding our country and understanding ourselves. I think I'll leave it there. So uh, this all starts kind of right after the Korean War. And there's this enormous hysteria about brainwashing about the North Koreans brainwashing American soldiers and getting them to confess. Is is that where the program came from? And is that why it was perpetuated through Vietnam and other times? In the end, it was concluded mind control is a myth. They should have been able to think of that at the beginning. What, what made them think that there's such a thing as mind control? That's a big question that I kept asking myself. And I think there are two sets of answers. Uh, There were a couple of incidents that the CIA misinterpreted, uh, given the climate of the time. Uh, The first came in uh, 1949 in Hungary when the Roman Catholic prelate, Cardinal Mincenti, was put on trial uh, by the communist authorities. He uh, confessed to crimes that he obviously had not committed. He had a kind of a glazed look in his eyes, spoke in a monotone the CIA immediately decided he's been brainwashed. They decided as a result of this observation that the Soviets 
had discovered the key to mind control. That made it so urgent that we do the same. Now, it later turned out that Mincenti, the cardinal, had been coerced by the very same methods that people have been using for hundreds of years. He was isolated. He was beaten. He had repetitive interrogation. There was no drug. But the CIA was conditioned to believe that. Oddly enough, the word brainwash was invented by a CIA propagandist who, uh, and it was used to promote the idea that people who had uh, dissenting or unusual ideas in American society must have been brainwashed. And I can understand why they might have wanted to create this fantasy, but the strange thing was they themselves then fell for their own fantasy. The other episode happened with Korea. So after the uh, Korean War ended, several thousand Americans who had been held prisoner in Korea came home. It turned out that a number of them had signed statements criticizing aspects of American life, in some cases had confessed to war crimes, including dropping germ bombs on North Korea, which we swore that we had never done. So the explanation also came out. How how could any of our strapping young men write things like that, say things like that? Answer, they were brainwashed. And it's actually an interesting footnote to this. I found one memo, tried to figure out how the brainwashing had happened. It said that while uh, the prisoners were being transported from North Korea across China to release points in Europe, several of them reported that they'd gone through kind of a blank area where they might have been poisoned, and that was in Manchuria. That's where the name of Manchuria became associated with all this. So there were a couple of episodes that electrified people at the CIA. And that they, as I said, that they misinterpreted as allowing them to reach a conclusion that actually was not true, that the communists, as we call them, had found the secret to mind control. But I don't think that's enough. I feel that their minds must have been fertilized. They were open to this crazy idea. Why? I think it was because of fiction, because of the stories and the movies and the books these people absorbed as they were growing up. There's Edgar Allan Poe stories. Sherlock Holmes stories, Gaslight, movies about Svengali. People go out and kill because an evil psychiatrist has hypnotized them. And I think these CIA guys, consciously or unconsciously, internalized this fantasy and concluded that what fiction writers could imagine, science could make real. And the interesting footnote to this is that as after MKUltra became known to the public beginning in the 1970s, it spawned a whole new genre of fiction. Books, novels, movies like Spotless Mind, Born Identity, Men in Black, all of these have mind control or mind washing as a theme. So a CIA project that was nurtured by fiction ultimately wound up nurturing a whole new subgenre of fiction itself. So the question was about the Sandoz chemical company in Switzerland. Why did they discover LSD? What were they doing with it? So LSD was discovered by accident. A chemist who had been, uh, I read his autobiography. He said, uh, as he started out his research, I looked ecstatically forward to the prospect of spending my lifetime investigating the ergot enzyme. I love what people get interested in. 
But as he was experimenting with the ergot enzyme, he was testing the 25th permutation of one combined medical chemical property, and he started feeling dizzy. He apparently had ingested it through his fingers. Then he came back and tested it on himself. And he quickly became, came to realize that this was an astonishing substance because in such tiny quantities, it could have such an intense effect. So he imagined it as a uh, tool that could be used to treat mental illness. The Sandoz people were never very comfortable with. So when Gottlieb came to buy all the LSD that they owned, they were happy to sell it. And then one of the things Gottlieb did to assure his permanent uh, supply was to go to an American pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly, send them some and ask them to reverse engineer it, which they finally did after a number of months and were able to manufacture it in what they called tonnage qualities. And it wasn't too many years after that that a couple of chemists out in California were able to also reverse engineer it. And the next thing you know, you had the Grateful Dead. Thanks so much for a really, really interesting talk. Um, the first time I heard about MK Ultra was actually in a class, psychology undergraduate class I took from Phil Zimbardo called The Psychology of Mind Control. And the argument he made, and I never heard about Cindy Godley, but it was about the program in general. And the argument he made was that they were in search of a Manchurian candidate but the only people whose minds they ended up controlling were their own. In other words, the only people that they persuaded were themselves um, about the ability to persuade as well as basically creating a cult within the CIA around these particular kinds of beliefs. So I'm really curious about your perspective on his argument. Regarding the Manchurian candidate, uh, it's really a, uh, a very interesting story. I, first of all, I think the... Uh, description that you gave is, is amazingly accurate. It's true. The only ones who really believed this stuff was possible were the people inside. They consulted other people, like, for example, the, the, at the Menninger Clinic. They conducted the, consulted the Menninger Brothers, leading psychologists around this famous psychoanalytic institute, and they both told them, this is nonsense. You're barking up a crazy tree. This is never going to result in anything. But since that wasn't the right answer, that was just filed away. And there were other people writing in places like Argosy and True Magazine, who told them, yes, it was true. So they, they love that stuff. One of these guys they actually hired as a consultant. So I just want to mention a little bit about the Manchurian candidate, though, specifically. I found a very interesting memo uh, that uh, remarked about this. And I believe that uh, the author of this actually commented on it during a, a Senate hearing. So the book of the Manchurian candidate was the first time that Masses of Americans were exposed to the idea of brainwashing. But it came out just at the time when inside the CIA, chemists were reaching the conclusion that mind control is a myth and there can never be any such thing as a Manchurian candidate. So this guy, uh, this chemist actually says that that movie caused us, uh, that book and movie caused us a lot of problems because just as we discovered that something couldn't happen, the whole world began to believe that it could. How important were individuals as opposed to forces? If Sidney Gottlieb had not existed, there still would have been an MK Ultra. But I think it might not have been so extreme. It wouldn't, I don't know if Gottlieb was a sadist, but he might as well have been. In that sense, he did shape the program. But as I said, given the climate of the times and the stimulus, uh, it, would have, it would have happened in any case. As for personalities, I believe that Alan Dulles probably discussed this with his brother, the Secretary of State, with whom he met almost every Sunday for brunch. 
John Foster Dulles also met almost every day when he was in Washington with the president of the United States. And I, I'm assuming that Eisenhower had a general idea, knew just as much as Alan Dulles wanted to tell him, which was all that he wanted to know. But I also think that there's a, an aspect of this story that plays out later on. In uh, 1975 came a development in the Frank Olson case. That guy went out the window in 1953. Suicide of an Army scientist, and the family was told he fell or jumped from a window, which is kind of an odd phrase. It wasn't until 22 years later that the CIA admitted that actually they had played a role in driving him to suicide because they had poisoned his drink with LSD just a week before he went out the window. And uh, obviously he had had a terrible bad trip and it was all our fault and we're so sorry we never realized that LSD would have this effect on him. He obviously was very disturbed anyway. Once Gottlieb put the CIS, put the LSD in his drink, it just sent him crazy. And, and we actually bear responsibility in a way for his suicide. So the president of the United States invited the Olson family into the Oval Office to apologize, something that has never happened before or since. And then President Ford sent them to see William Colby, the new director of the CIA, uh, and to share with them whatever he knew. And Colby said to them, as I mentioned earlier, uh, some of our people were out of control in those days. There were problems of supervision. It was all Sydney. Now we realize we never should have let that one crazy guy go off on his own. And I think it's perfect deniability. In a way, it is true. He went off on his own, but they allowed him to go off on his own and do all these things specifically so that later on, 22 years later, a future CIA director could say he was out of control. I think that's a way of trying to avoid institutional responsibility and uh, probably quite successful. What do you think is the moral distinction between people, as you pointed out, are committed to a cause and thereby um, commit all kinds of morally uh, reprehensible acts and people who are committed to making a profit who will hide the data regarding the lethality of their products like Teflon? or like nicotine or whatever. There's a great similarity. It's easy to lose sight of this great moral question. Is there a limit to how much evil you can do in pursuit of what you think is a good cause before the evil begins to outweigh the good? I think this is something that Gottlieb definitely lost sight of. Nonetheless, I think that the officers in the early CIA took a sort of pride in being callous about human life. It was a way to show how macho you were. And uh, it would have seemed very uh, naive and sentimental to complain about the excesses of MK Ultra, given the threat, as we were made to believe it, or the loss of a few hundred lives, would seem completely insignificant. And that's why I say you get lost in this moral wilderness when you stop asking yourself if there's ever a time when the bad can outweigh the good cause. Thank you all very much. That was Stephen Kinzer on the CIA's search for mind control. He spoke at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Stephen Kinzer was a New York Times correspondent and bureau chief in Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey. He teaches at Brown University. And he's the author of many books, including 
poisoner-in-chief, Sidney Gottlieb, and the CIA search for mind control. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Stephen Kinzer on the CIA's search for mind control, and his book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA's search for mind control, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is one 800 444 Or you can go on our website, alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Calgary may experience a ridiculous amount of snow, but it also has CGSW, a station that broadcasts in all kinds of weather, transporting you to sunnier places when you need it. 90.9 FM, to be enjoyed at any temperature. Broadcasting on Treaty 7 land and on Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3.
promessa, ritorno protetta, trascina pensiero profondo, parola protratta, ritratto, promessa, ritorno protetta, trascina pensiero profondo, parola protratta, ritratto, promessa, ritorno protetta, trascina pensiero profondo, parola protratta, ritratto, promessa, ritorno protetta, trascina pensiero profondo, parola protratta, ritratto, promessa, ritorno protetta, trascina pensiero profondo, parola protratta, ritratto, promessa, ritorno protetta, trascina pensiero profondo, parola protratta, ritratto, promessa, ritorno protetta.